Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that your will and your character is not hidden from us, but you reveal yourself in Scripture. And when we read the Bible, we hear your very voice speaking to us. We pray that uh, we would listen with eager hearts. We pray that um, we would um, be blessed in the hearing of it, as Revelation promises, if we, if we heed the words. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> All right. So, this is the conclusion to the whole Bible Sunday School series, all 66 books in the Bible. Very glad for that feat. Um, and I just want to remark at the beginning um, that the Bible is this single coherent story and why that's so remarkable. Um, I'm going to turn off. Are you guys cold? Because if not, I'm going to turn it off. Okay. Did you say something? Yeah, oh, you're cold. I'm not turning on the AC. <laughs> That's a good compromise. <laughs> um, so the Bible, we, we have to remember, is 66 books. It's an anthology. It's a collection of books, right? 66 books written over a 1,600-year period. Um, and yet, you have this amazing, remarkable coherence. And I think the Bible, in many ways, is like a novel written by this brilliant writer who anticipates the end in the beginning, right? Sort of like any great story, um, the, the seeds of the ending, the resolution is there at the beginning. And so that's what you see in the Bible as well. So that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Revelations 21 and 22 are bookends of Scripture, and the story arc neatly resolves. So you have... <clears throat> you have the tree of life at the beginning, you have the tree of life at the end, right? The tree of life is unattainable at the beginning, and at the end, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. It starts, in, the story starts in a garden, it ends in a garden city, right? Not just a return to the garden, but the garden built up and developed. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve, and it ends with the wedding supper of the Lamb. So I think that's an amazing, um, an amazing thing, and it should help us to realize that Scripture is divine. Um, it gives us assurance that it's from God, because it's, otherwise it's the world's most remarkable piece of literature. All right, so let's go to Revelation. Um, so I want to start by helping us place Revelation in the context, right, to frame it correctly. And the question that Revelation is asking is why hasn't history ended, right? So here I want to introduce the idea of redemptive history. This is a very important concept. Let me write this. Redemptive history. Also called um, the story of salvation. Okay? So history is not just a sequence of random events um, with a chronology, um, but... It's a story being written by God in which there is, an, and in every good story, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's a coherent uh, connection, right? So let me write this down. There's a beginning, 
there's a middle, and then there's an end. Okay? And the story is it starts in the Garden of Eden, right? And the story begins with the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is, that's a test. It's a probation. And remember, there's a second tree. The second tree is the tree of life. Um, and that is uneaten. And that tree of life anticipates the end, how the story is supposed to end. Because if Adam and Eve had passed the test, they would have then eaten the tree. Um, not that... Life is not just life, but life, not just biological life or mere existence, but life with God. And then the other thing is, at the beginning of the story, you have the Sabbath, this unending day of rest. And so that also anticipates the end of the story. So right at the beginning, you have glimpses, you have previews, foreshadowings of the end. But what happens is, Adam and Eve fail the test. So you have the middle of the story, right? In the middle of the story, humanity is plunged into death, and sin and rebellion, but God is redeeming a people for himself. That's, he starts with Abraham, this one family, and then the nation of Israel. And he's, re, he's, he's redeeming a people, he's saving a people, he's establishing the Garden of Eden again through this community of believers. But the story of Israel is that they're surrounded on all sides by pagans, by unbelievers, by idolatry, and they're being besieged. They're being constantly attacked so that the people of God suffer, right? So that's the, that's the dominant characteristic of the middle of the story, is suffering. I don't know why I put it in quotes, but it's suffering. And so then, how will the story end? And then this is where the prophets come in. The prophets say God is going to save his people in a, in a fulsome, consummate way, and he's going to crush all enemies. There's going to be no more evil, no more death, only prosperity, only flourishing, fullness of joy, for God will come and be with his people, and that end will happen when this Savior King will arrive, and he will establish the kingdom of God. So the end of the story resolves when the Messiah comes, right? And with the Messiah comes healing. So that's redemptive history. Simple, easy, beginning, middle, and end, okay? Um, let me, let me uh, read you a sample of some of the prophets. The, the, the entire theme of the prophets is the end of history, the end of the story. So let's just read, for example, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah writes, comfort, comfort my people. Why does he have to pronounce comfort? Because they're suffering, right? That's the dominant mood. That's the dominant feeling of being an Israelite in the middle of the story is you're suffering, right? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and, he, and cry to her that her warfare has, is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then verse 3, a voice cries out in the wilderness, 
prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the, in the desert a highway for our God. Right? This highway is going to lead to Jerusalem. So look what's going to happen. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, <clears throat> and the rough places a plain, right? So everything's going to be smooth, so everyone can come and gather in Jerusalem. And in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What is Isaiah talking about? God is going to come down, and His glory is going to be revealed in the Messiah. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there it is, right? That's the basic message of all the prophets. God's people are oppressed, crying out for deliverance. And the Messiah will come, and that will be the healing of all God's people. No more suffering, enemies crushed, evil ended. By the way, in verse 3, when it says, In the wilderness, a voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Where, is, where, where, did you see, where else have you seen that? In the New Testament. I can't hear. Yes, those are the exact verses that are quoted when John the Baptist is introduced. So who is John the Baptist? He's that voice, which implies what? Jesus is what then? The Messiah, right? So the John the Baptist arrives, everyone's like, whoa! Then Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. Everyone's like, great! The end of history has arrived. Does that make sense? This is why... Um, when Jesus, and today is Palm Sunday, Wade's going to preach about um, the triumphal entry. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what happens? The whole city, right, they're in exalted celebration. This is a passage from Zechariah chapter 9. Listen to this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So why are the people rejoicing? Because the middle of the story is ending now. Now it's the end. The king is coming Rejoice! He's going to crush their enemies. Um, he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And then what happens in the actual story? Shock. Exact opposite of what everyone expected. This Messiah king who was supposed to reestablish the kingdom, crush the enemies, he does, by definition, pretty much the most opposite thing you can do to that. Which is he's caught, arrested, and then he's shamefully placed on a Roman cross, naked, writhing in pain and, and agony, and then he's killed. Right? This is why, by the way, the Jews did not believe Jesus is the Messiah. How could he be the Messiah when this, doesn't, this hasn't happened, right? So that's the story. Um, but we know Jesus resurrected from the dead, which vindicates him. He is the Messiah. But then that still leaves the question of the end. Why didn't history end, right? Why is there suffering continuing? Why does evil continue on? Why does it seem like um, unbelievers are ascendant? And the answer of the New Testament is the reason for the delay is so that the nations can be gathered in. So that's the answer. There's a delay. So let me read you two passages. There are several passages that talk about this, but listen to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So it's telling us the end hasn't come yet, the end of the story, because 
the gospel has to go out to the whole world to be preached so that the Gentile nations can come in. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. What promise is he talking about? If you read the context, he's talking about the promise that the Messiah will come, come again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it, the evil works, will be exposed. So there's a delay. God wants repentance. God wants all peoples to come to him. But then the end will come, and it will be like a thief in the night, right? So the answer is you have the, um, what was supposed to be the end prophesied, uh, spoken of by the prophets when the Messiah comes, but now we have the fuller picture from the New Testament. The coming of the Messiah is only the beginning of the end. And then the actual full end will happen after the nations are gathered in. And then all the um, prophecies of the Old Testament will be fulfilled so that the healings, so that restoration is delayed for this moment. Does that make sense? In the meantime, the church suffers. God's people suffers. So we're in the end, I mean, so that this period right here looks a lot like this period, the middle of the story. Right? We're surrounded by evil empires. We're this beleaguered minority, persecuted, attacked. Looks like this, even though we're at the beginning of the end. So listen to, for, so that's the point of Revelation. It's explaining what's going on here. So listen to, for example, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a, a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That, there it is. You have martyrs, Christian martyrs, Christians who faithfully stand up for Jesus, tell their neighbors about Jesus, and they're killed for it. And so these martyrs in heaven are crying out to God, when is the end coming? And God says, wait a little longer. The full number hasn't yet come in, the gathering of the nations, right? So this is the central message of Revelation. It's the suffering of God's people. And why, why is suffering necessary for, while the nations are gathered in? And the answer is um, the wheat and the tares. Do you guys remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Um, Jesus uh, sows good, uh, good seed, the wheat, but then the devil comes and he sows tares. The servants come to the master, to the farmer, and says, what should we do? Should we just tear up all the tares? The farmer says, no. If you do that, then the wheat will be destroyed as well. Leave them in place. 
and then at harvest time, we'll separate them, right? So the wheat and the tares grow up together inside the field. It's like the parable of the sheep and the goats. They're separated only at the end. That's judgment day. In the meantime, it's all mixed in. And God's people suffer as a result. Judgment day is delayed. And it's delayed because if judgment day were to come now, then the fullness of God's people will never be experienced, right? And there's also the benefit that suffering refines us. So we should take suffering with with joy and with gladness, knowing that God is refining us like golden fire. All right, um, any questions so far about the idea of redemptive history? This is, this is very important. So what Revelation is talking about is this. is the reason for the delay, uh, the period of delay, and then the final end of the story. Any questions? Yeah. No. There is none. This is the reason why um, there's, for example, the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. Um, Jesus' disciples are walking back to Emmaus um, after the crucifixion. Jesus comes alongside of them and says, why are you looking so sad? They say, have you not heard what's been going on? There was this Jesus of Nazareth. He was a mighty prophet. He was doing all these miracles. He was preaching the kingdom of God. It seemed like the Messiah had come, but he was crucified. They're all dejected. Why are they dejected? Because the crucifixion is never, it, it's, it is alluded to in the Old Testament, the suffering servant passages, but in such a way that it just didn't make any sense. So people just, you know, cognitive dissonance. They just ignore those passages, right? So then Jesus says, but don't you know, the Messiah had to suffer. So he goes through the Old Testament. So the answer is yes and no, but nobody saw it. That's why all the, the Pharisees, that's why all the Jews are like, I don't understand. That's why Peter, when Jesus says, I have the Son of Man has to go, be arrested, persecuted, and crucified, Peter's like, no! That's not the story I heard. That's why when the, the Roman soldiers come to arrest, the, the, I'm sorry, the temple guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword. He's like, you're not, killing, you're not capturing my king. This is the end of the story. But nobody understood. That's why the, that's why the resurrection was like a crazy shock. Res, the resurrection is supposed to happen at the end, not in the middle of the story. So you have a middle of the story resurrection where death, persecution, suffering, evil goes on. But the resurrection of a single individual. It's not supposed to happen. It's supposed to happen at the very end. All right. I don't know if that answers your question. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, I don't know if this is helpful to speculate, but like, wouldn't it just be like, I guess, easier if you had told them in the Old Testament, hey, there's going to be a delay, and then it'd be easier for them to, like, I guess, believe? I suppose so. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the terms that theologians have come up with is called the, uh, the prophetic horizon. Right? So uh, the horizon is the line uh, between um, the expanse of the sky and the land, right? Or it's the edge of what you can see, right? So, when, so you're an observer here, and then you see the horizon, and you see two objects on the horizon. And on the horizon, they look like they're right next to each other. And then you're walking, and then you get to that place, and then you realize it's actually like this. They're, they're, they're set apart. So that's sort of the, the, the explanation that people have for what's going on in the prophets. The other thing I think is that Revelation and the prophets are very similar, which is, and I'm going to get to the whole how do you read Revelation, they mix it all up. 
because it's all the end. This is all the end. So the prophets are talking about the end, and they don't spell out the chronology. They just mish, mash it all up. There'll be the forgiveness of, so the end is the forgiveness of sins, the destruction of evil, judgment day, the healing of the nations. But it's spread out in the actual story of the New Testament. You have the forgiveness of sins and the cross, but you, don't, you do not have the final destruction of evil until the end. And so then Revelation is fleshing that out even more. All right. So the main point of Revelation is spiritual battle. Um, during this delay, what is our story? Not just suffering, but it, we're battling. Um, listen to, uh, in many ways, Revelation is an extended commentary on Ephesians 6. Listen to Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Right? So the devil is a real supernatural spiritual figure. He has schemes. <laughs> he's, a, he's a brilliant, wicked, vile enemy of the church. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we don't see it. Where's the devil? <laughs> Where's our adversary? It just seems like we're living in flesh and blood. And so Revelation is peeling back the curtain, saying, no, there's this massive spiritual battle going on. It's showing us the reality, sort of like the book of Job. If you read the book of Job, Job suffers calamity, suffering, disaster. But the book of Job does a wonderful thing. It peels back the curtain of heaven and shows us the spiritual reality going on, which is Satan is saying to God, Job doesn't love you. He loves you for your money. He doesn't really love you. And God says, I permit you to torment Job so that he, I could be vindicated in the life of Job. Or it's like the story of the chariots of fire with Elisha at Dothan. Do you guys remember that story in 2 Kings? Um, I'm not going to read the passage because it's a little bit long. But uh, what happens is uh, the king of Syria sends his Syrian army to surround Dothan. Then Elisha and his servant are there, and Elisha's servant is quaking in his boots. He's looking at the armies of Syria and says, we're doomed. We're going to die. <laughs> we're going to be killed. And then uh, let me just direct you to um, um, verse 16. Elisha says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, listen to this, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There it is. That's basically revelation, right? We think evil is winning. We see the armies of Syria surrounding us, and we're like, we're doomed. And the book of Revelation is like the prayer of Elisha. It opens our eyes and we suddenly see their chariots of fire, the armies of God surrounding us. And the, ar the, the battle isn't a fair fight. It's a completely lopsided fight in favor of God. We're safe, even as we're battling. Um, any questions there before we go on to how do we read Revelation? All right. So how do we read Revelation? Um, there, are, there are four, uh, classically, there are four main views. I'm only going to focus on two views because those are the two views that most people talk about. Um, and of the four views, there are like 20 variations on each view. Um, 
it's highly contested. I guess this is why you're all here. Um, they did an interesting survey. They asked congregations, which book of the Bible would you most like to hear a sermon series on? And the number one answer was Revelation. They asked pastors, which book of the Bible do you least want to preach on? Number one answer was Revelation. <laughs> right? So um, it's a match. Um, what's going on in Revelation? Why is there so many divergent views? Um, I think the reason is because there's a density of, of fantastical imagery and the, the understanding is not as straightforward like the epistles. It's not like Galatians or Romans, but it's in, very, in, in, in many ways it's like this long, long extended parable of Jesus, right? Where he's using a lot of imagery and we have to try to understand the meaning behind it. All right, so there are two main views. And um, I'm going to try to walk you through the two main views. The two main views are called the futurist view and the idealist view. Um, the futurist view, I call it the future sequence view. This is the dispensational view. Um, this is by far the majority view in America today. And what it says is, as it says in the name of the view, Revelation is mostly about the future, okay? Most of what has happened, actually, everything that is outlined in Revelation has not yet happened, starting in Revelation 4. Um, each scene that you see in Revelation describes in chronological order a sequence of events that will fall down like dominoes in chronological order. Sec and then the other thing is that all of the figures and details have a one-to-one -one correspondence with a figure or an event in world history. So when the book of Revelations talks about the Antichrist, that's a single figure yet to emerge in world history. That's the futurist view. So you're looking for him, right? Um, and so the futurist view is that um, it's, it's, it's talking about the end. And here, let me, let me, let me draw it like this. So this is the cross. And this is the end. So the futurist view is that the revelation is about this period. And it gives us a detailed breakdown of what the end will look like. Does that make sense? Um, the basic sequence of the futurist view, it's complicated, but this is the basic breakdown, is that first, uh, the church is to be raptured up to heaven. Then Israel returned to its land. There will be a seven-year period of tribulation. The reign of the Antichrist will begin. The nations, he will gather the nations to war against Jerusalem. Christ will return, defeat that army. There will be a thousand-year period of peace. That's the millennium in Revelation 20. We'll talk about that. There will be a final climactic battle between Satan and Christ in Revelation 20. And then you have the new heavens and the new earth. Um, actually, if you look at, depending on how detailed futurists go, there's maybe tw uh, 12 or so battles. So they'll talk about 12 distinct battles, right, where this will happen. Um, if you also read the book of Revelation, Christ appears at many points in the story. So there are multiple comings of Christ. He comes first in a secret way for the rapture. Then he comes again to defend Jerusalem, to fight these armies in 19. Then he comes again in, in, in his full fullness at the end of chapter 20. So there are multiple comings of Christ in the futurist view. This view, which is, this is my view, the view I'm going to try to teach you guys today and persuade you, is called the idealist view. Idealist because it says 
that revelation is basically using symbols. Uh, there's a lot of uh, symbolic imagery. It's called the redemptive historical view. Um, I call it the recapitulation view. That's, I think, the most helpful way to think about it. And so here it is. The, the idealist view is that revelation is mostly not in the future. It's mostly now. Okay? So if I could draw this graph again, here's the cross. Here's the end, right? Revelation is mostly now, but also talking about the end. So I guess if you want to keep it parallel, futures view, just, this one should be called the, the presentist view, um, the currentist view. Um, the scenes in the book of Revelation are not in chronological order. This is the idealist view. And they are parallel descriptions of the same event over and over again. Does that make sense? So they're recapitulating. They're repeating themselves. And it's sort of like, um, the, uh, I was thinking about it, uh, the Beatitudes. So let me, let, me, let me show you what I mean by that. So in the Beatitudes, right, Jesus, um, okay, here it is, right? Listen to this, right? So in, in the Beatitudes, Jesus blesses several people. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So the recapitulation view, our dealist view says, or the analogy that I'm using, is that he's not talking about different groups of people. He's just talking about the same group using different terms or different ways to talk about them. There are those who mourn. There are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're, they, um, what is it? They're, they're poor in spirit. That's all the same group. They're just different descriptions for the same one group. Whereas the futurist group would say, no, each one is a distinct category. Does that make sense? So that's the big difference. The idealist view says everything in Revelation is just a, it's, 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 so, it's sort of like a dream. When you have a dream, nothing's coherent. Everything's all mixed up. And you just see, have one scene after one scene after one scene, but you're not supposed to put them together in a, in a timeline. It's all talking about this, the end, right? Um, so the basic sequence of view for the recapitulation view is that Christ has won the victory over Satan on the cross. He's defeated already, but not yet. So we live between the times, between the two ends. And then you have in this delay middle period, you have the millennium, you have tribulation, you have Satan looking ascendant, and then you have the final battle, you have judgment day, and then you have the new heavens and new earth. Here's the reasons why I think the recapitulation view is correct. I laid out three reasons. Number one, the recapitulation view or the idealist view is the simplest and clearest way to read Revelation. Um, I don't think the, if, if, you, if you dive into futurist literature, you virtually need a PhD to understand what's going on. Um, I feel like I'm not unqualified to read a lot of biblical scholarship, I can barely make heads or tails of it. <laughs> so, so I just think like that's not the way God would write his word, which would be incredible. It's like code breaking. I just don't think it would work like that. It would be very simple that even a child can understand it. And so I think the idealist view lends itself to that. The idealist view basically says that all of the fantastical figures in, in, in the book of Revelation are types. Uh, 
So when it talks about the Antichrist, it's not talking about a single figure. It's saying that in every generation, in every time period, through, through this delay period, there are Antichrists. When it talks about, like, for example, the whore, the, the, the whore Babylon, which we'll, we'll look at in, 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 uh, coming up, it's not talking about a single entity or single figure. The Babylon whore exists all throughout history. We, we, can, we, we see it. Um, second reason. I believe the idealist view has the most value for Christians today. So that the descriptions we read is talking about us. We're in the story. We're experiencing the tribulation. We're experiencing demonic forces at work. Whereas the futurist view, since it's all in the future, it's not happening now. And it's not happening now, it doesn't really apply to you. You can read about it. You can say, ooh, what's going to happen? You can read Left Behind novels about the future but it doesn't have any relevance for you now, right? Third reason, um, in the futurist view, which is based on the dispensational reading of the Bible, Israel and the church are separated. So one of the reasons, the futurist view is also called the literalist view of Revelation, which is a lot of it is talking about Israel. And they say, oh, whenever Revelation talks about Israel, it's not talking about the church, because otherwise they would have used the word church. See, it's very literal. So church and Israel are two separate entities. So the church, you don't see the church in, in the book of Revelation. You don't see the word church in the book of Revelation. So therefore, they must have been raptured out. They're out of the story. And then you have this whole drama with Israel. I think it's a very clumsy, clunky way to read the Bible. Um, the Bible, Israel and the church are one people. Read Romans chapter 11, right? You have um, is, Israel's the olive tree. Gentiles are wild shoots. They've been grafted in. We're one tree. We're one people. Um, finally, one more. Let me throw in a fourth reason why I think the idealist view is correct. In the futurist view, because there's a detailed sequence of events, you can anticipate when this is going to happen. Because this has happened, and this has happened, and this has happened, right? But in the idealist view, it's all happening now. So when is Christ going to come back? There is no marker because all the markers are true now. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's satanic forces at work. And therefore, that comports best to what Jesus and the New Testament says repeatedly, that Jesus says, I will come like a thief in the night. How does a thief in the night come? I, I have not experienced a thief in the night, but this is how I imagine it. They don't ring your doorbell and announce or give you a notice, I'm gonna come, you know, 3 a.m. on this date. They wear cat burglar clothing, right? They come and sneak into your house when you least expect it. That's the way Jesus is going to come. We have no idea. It could happen at any moment because it's all already been fulfilled. Revelation has already been fulfilled in the sense that it's happening now. Um, any questions about the two views, futurist, idealist? How am I doing in time? Oh, not so bad. I really want to get to Millennium, so yes. I've read a Newsweek article, and this might be also a third view, which was Revelation was written at the time when the church was persecuted, so it doesn't apply today. It applies yeah, to the it's called the historic. Yeah, it's called the preterist view. So this is all future, mostly present. The preterist view is mostly past. So Revelation is about the drama of what's going on in uh, the early church period with Rome, and so it's mostly just a historical record of what happened in the past. That's the third view, yeah. The fourth view is called the, the, the historicist view, which is that all the different scenes in, in Revelation is talking about the various stages of church history. 
so the medieval era, the patristic period, and so forth. I think that's the least likely of the views. <laughs> Um, all right. Any or any more questions about uh, the futurist or idealist view? The Preter's view is out there. I kind of see it as a strange fringe view. I remember when I was in high school, I, I used to really like Hank Hanegraaff, and uh, he was really a, a strong component of the Preter's view. But other than Hank Hanegraaff, I don't know of anyone else who strongly pushes that view. Anyways, any questions about these two views? Okay. Let's go on. So snapshots of revelations. I want to read three passages. So um, here's, here's a clue on how to read Revelation. There's a hyperdensity of Old Testament allusions. In fact, there are more Old Testament allusions in Revelation than all of the New Testament combined. It's, it's, it's virtually one allusion per verse. And they focus on Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and Isaiah. But it's just, it's just everything. So a lot of the fantastical imagery, you're like, why is that there? Why, why that description? Why that number? It's actually almost a direct quotation of something else in the Old Testament. And it's just showing you that Revelation is telling you that what the prophets were talking about, which is the end, is finally coming to pass. So let's read um, three passages. Let me start with Revelation chapter 4. The message here is that God is in control and reigns from heaven. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an em emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Those are all theophanies. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, the crystal sea. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So what is the point of that scene? I think what it's saying is that above the tumult of earth, all of this wars and persecution, in heaven, God is reigning. He's glorious. And you have the 24 elders where do we get the number 24? There's a lot of symbolic numbers in, in Revelation. So 24 comes from 12 plus 12. 12 is, represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there's also the 12 apostles, right? So I think this is just talking about the fullness of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, it talks about the seven spirits. That's another, uh, uh, seven is another number that comes up very frequently in Revelation. Seven is a reference to what? What significant event in the Old Testament? Yes. So there are seven days in creation, right? So that seven means full. By the way, the number four also has that similarish meaning because there are four corners of the earth, four points on the compass. So that also means full and complete. So you have the seven spirits. I think this is talking about the Holy Spirit. There's another passage, I forget where, where it has a similar, it uses the exact same words, seven spirits, and it's pretty clear that it's the Holy Spirit there. So it's the fullness of the Spirit and all of His 
in all of his grandeur and, and splendor. It talks about a sea of glass. Um, in the ancient world, you have to remember the sea is a scary place. Uh, we sometimes think sailors love the sea. Maybe in the modern world, I don't know about that, but in the ancient world, the sailors were terrified of the sea. They hated the sea. Every time they went out, they were shaking. They would offer sacrifices because the sea is where you die. <laughs> um, and in fact, in Revelation 12, the dragon, the great beast, emerges out of the sea. The sea is a terrible place. There's a wonderful scene in the Old Testament where the temple is built. There's a large bronze um, bowl. It's, there's a sea. It's calm. It shows you that God is in control. So this one, the sea, there's not even any water. It's crystal. It's perfectly calm and serene. Four living creatures uh, falling down and worshiping. Uh, what does that remind you of, by the way? What scene in the Old Testament does this remind you of? They have six wings. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, right? Um, so these are angels worshiping God. Uh, the four animals there represents the whole of creation. Each one is like the apex animal for each of their groups. So God is in control. All right, so let's go to Revelation 17. So here we're going to get to some more exotic imagery. Here we have a picture of Satan and Rome persecuting the church. Verse 1, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. That's the prostitute that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk, listen to this, with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So it's a really frightening imagery. You have this prostitute with Babylon on her forehead, and she's riding this dragon with uh, seven head, ten horns. So this shows us the unholy alliance of Satan, uh, of the dragon and the prostitute. And the dragon represents Satan, that's clear in many other passages. And the prostitute represents the great empires of the world because um, they're sitting on many waters. That's, that's, that's a, a, a description used for empires. <coughs> the prostitute is called Babylon. So remember, Israel uh, had three great foes in its history. The, Phil uh, the Egyptians, the Philistines, and Babylon. Babylon was the greatest of them all, the most vile, the most terrible. They destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. So Babylon represents the apex of all pagan cities, the greatest of all pagan cities. So here you have Babylon persecuting the church. Um, I think it's very easy to make the connection that Babylon here is referring at the time to Rome. But not just to Rome, but to every great empire that has ever existed that persecutes believers. Right? We think about communist China. We think about communist Russia. We think about all kinds of other um, vile empires like Idi Amin in Uganda. Right? There have always been governments that specifically targeted and persecuted Christians. I think about North Korea as well. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the empires of the world are pawns of Satan. They're vehicles of oppression and injustice, and they're being used by Satan to do his bidding. Um, and I think what that means is that Christians have an ambiguous relationship with the government. Romans 13, we are to obey and submit to government. We're supposed to respect the civil authorities. But at the same time, 
we're not to have any delusions that the government will say, come Christians, come and we will embrace you and love you and you know, you, you, this will be a safe place for you. Sometimes that happens in the sense that there's a temporary law in their persecution, but the overall presentation of Revelation is that civil government is a place of hostility and persecution for believers. Um, maybe that doesn't resonate with us because we're Americans and we enjoy the benign patronage of the American government, although that's ending, I think, to some degree. But our brothers and sisters around the world, they don't think so. <laughs> They're suffering persecution, right? Um, and so that's the story. Um, the other thing is that the way the empires of the world is depicted, it's interesting. Um, she's arrayed in gold, in purple, and scarlet. She's beautiful. It just shows you the allure of the world. Uh, worldliness is always beckoning to Christians, particularly through sexual immorality. And so that's the story there. Uh, let me just make a quick note. Um, um, we're, Christians today are being challenged to two allegiances. Allegiance to uh, Satan and the systems of this world through the empires of the world. And then that's what um, Revelation 13 is talking about, I think, when it says you receive the sign of the beast, 666. Charles Manson thought it was literal, so he carved 666 on his forehead. But I think it's just a parallel to the other passage um, in Revelation 7 and 14, where it talks about the 144,000. By the way, the 144,000 is also a symbolic number. Where do we get 144,000? 12,000 times 12, right? So 12, 000, 12 represents fullness of God's people. 1,000 is just a big, big number. Um, so 144,000 is just all the fullness of God's people, not a literal number. And in the description, it says that the name of God was written on their forehead. So that matches 666 being written on the forehead of people who worship the beast. This is not a literal writing. It's just an expression. It means that you give your allegiance to. Who do you ultimately worship? Who do you ultimately obey and love? Do you love Jesus, King Jesus? Are you one of his or are you one of Satan's? Unwittingly, no one worships Satan directly. You worship Satan by following the idols of this world. And behind the idols is Satan doing his, he's the puppet master. All right, I want to get to Revelation 20, the millennium. All right, the most single most controversial passage in Revelation is Revelation 20. Um, let me read it to you. Oh, so the point is there's going to be a thousand years where Satan is bound and the church is gathered together, gathers the nations. <coughs> let me read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. See, so, so the dragon is Satan. And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then, let me skip to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And then what happens is this big battle between God and Satan, and that's Judgment Day, and that's the end. And then it goes right to Revelation 21, which is the new heavens and the new earth. So how do we read Revelation 20 and the millennium? There are basically two main views that map onto the two main ways to read Revelation, right? So the, the, the main thing is the futurists, remember futurists believe that all of the chapters in Revelation, all the scenes are in chronological order, okay? 
So who, who remembers what happened in Revelation 19? Who's a real Bible nerd here? All right. So Revelation 19, to refresh your memory, because I know it's on the tip of your tongue. Revelation 19, Jesus comes on a white horse. You guys remember, right? And uh, he has like a sword and his, like, his clothing, I mean, his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? Um, so he's coming and he smashes and he defeats Satan, right? So the futurists say, okay, so here you have Revelation 19 and the Jesus on a white horse. So he comes. So that's the coming of Jesus. And then you have Revelation 20, which is the thousand years, the millennium. So therefore, when does Jesus come in relationship to the millennium? Before. This view is called premillennialism, right? Because Jesus comes before the millennium. Because it's all in sequence. Does that make sense? So <coughs> that means we know Jesus hasn't come yet. Did anyone see Jesus on a white horse yet? No, right? So we know Jesus hasn't come yet. So what does the millennium mean? It means the millennium is future. We're waiting for it to happen. It has not yet arrived. Also, the futurist view is basically a very hardcore literalist view. So it's going to be a literal thousand years. So this thousand year period is still awaiting us in the future, right? Once all of these, you know, scenes happen. What is the idealist view? The idealist view is that it's all mixed up. It's not in chronological order. So Jesus on a white horse is talking about Judgment Day. He's talking about the final climactic battle. And therefore, it has no relationship to the thousand years. So this view is called amillennialism. Because awe just means, I think it's a bad, <laughs> badly titled thing, but awe just means none or it, there is no millennium. In the sense that it isn't as the premillennialists think. In fact, rather, I think the best way to read the thousand years is that the thousand years, remember all the scenes are now. The thousand years are happening right now. We're in the thousand years. And Jesus riding on a white horse will happen chronologically after the millennium. So a, a, a cousin view is called post-millennialism, after the millennium. If you read Revelation 20, Jesus comes at the end of a thousand years. Remember, Satan is released, then Jesus comes and he defeats Satan, big climactic battle. The problem with the futurist view is you have two comings of Jesus then. So you have a second coming and a third coming. Technically, when he comes for the rapture, that's also that's the fourth coming. So there are multiple, multiple comings. The futurist view lends itself to incredible complexity. The idealist view is very simple. Jesus only comes the second time. He only comes once. It's a definitive coming. And therefore, every time it talks about Jesus coming, and battling Satan, that's the very end. That's the judgment day. That ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And every, everything else that happens is here. It's the middle. So the tribulation period is the middle. The thousand year period is the middle. This is where a lot of premillennialists say this doesn't make any sense. Because it says in the thousand years, Satan is bound. But then in the other parts of Revelation, it says Satan is rampaging. He's going around destroying, harming the church. So how can they both be true? And so let me give you a defense of the amillennial slash postmillennial slash idealist view. Okay, so I didn't have space because I want to keep it to a single handout. So let me read you some passages. Okay, so the first thing is I want, you, I want to show you that Satan being bound in the millennium is not a future event. It has already happened. 
Satan is bound. Listen to Mark chapter 3, for example, 23 to 27. And Jesus called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Remember, the Pharisees were saying, Jesus, the only way you can do these miracles, exorcisms, is because you're using Satan's power. You're Satan. So Jesus says, no. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot, will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Listen to this. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What is Jesus saying? I've come to assault Satan's stronghold. And I've bound Satan. I've tied him up. Right? So that's the millennium. Listen to Colossians chapter 2 verse 15. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan, Jesus has already done it. He's bound Satan. Because in, in Revelation 20 it says, Satan is bound so that he may no longer deceive the nations. Why is that an important clause? Because the reason why the kingdom of God doesn't spread to the whole world is because Satan had a grip on all the nations. But with the coming of Christ, the first coming, and the cross, Satan is bound. He can no longer deceive the nations, and now the nations can be gathered in. This is why Jesus says to Peter, Matthew 16, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are held at bay. That's the millennium. But then some of you are saying, okay, if Satan is bound, why is he a dangerous foe? Listen to, for example, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Or Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2. And you were dead in the trespasses of, and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Listen, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Satan is described as a prince of this world. He's the lord of this world. And simultaneously, he's bound. How does that make sense? The answer is it's both. Satan is both bound and he's on the loose like a lion. And the message of that is we need to be on guard. We have to fight, right? We have to fight for our life, but simultaneously we're safe. Satan is, has been defeated and he will be defeated and he's bound even now. And one day Jesus will come and truly his doom is assured. And so it's both. And Revelation 20, the millennium, emphasizes Jesus, uh, uh, Satan's limitation. So this is why I think Revelation can be difficult to read, because you have passages where Satan is on the loose, he's rampaging, he's this dragon, he's devouring believers. And then you have Revelation 20, where Satan is in a pit, in chains. And I think that matches what the New Testament says about Satan, which is that he's bound, but he's also a lion on the loose. So it fits. That's, Revel that's, uh, that's uh, Revelation 20. I answered the mystery of the millennium. Any, <laughs> any question? Yeah, I have a question. Why, the means bound means limited. It means unable to do his full. That's why I think, um, and we're going to get to that in the next Sunday School series on um, miraculous healings. But that's why during the time of Jesus, tons of exorcism. Many people were possessed by demons because Satan was in control. Then you have Jesus. He comes into the stronghold of Satan. He breaks the power of Satan. Now on the cross, he defeats him. And so Satan's power is now greatly diminished. So 
So the church now explodes in growth. We can advance and, 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 and bring in the, in the nations, but Satan is still not fully defeated. Yes, that's exactly what that's saying. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Is the thousand years literal? And like, so for in it, could we definitely say? So if you're an idealist, is the thousand years literal? Uh, no, because it, it began with the resurrection of Christ, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and it continues to this day. That's 2,000 years. So why a thousand years then? Anytime you see round numbers, you just say, hmm. Like, like, like when kids say, give me a million bucks, you know, or, or someone says, like, I hope to live to 100 years. Why do people use round numbers? Why don't they use more precise numbers? I'm going to live to 68 years and five months, right? <laughs> you use round numbers to emphasize bigness. So a thousand years is just, a long, is just another way to say a really long, long time. Otherwise, Revelation, I suppose, could have been precise. It's going to be 2,135 years. Right, but then we know, you know, then it's not a thief in the night. <laughs> Any other questions? So regardless of whether one is a futurist or an idealist, um, what's the meaning of the belief in revelation? Is it to have that sense of urgency? Yes, yeah, we're in spiritual battle. Although, I would say if you're a futurist, it does take away the rub of the battle because the real battles are yet to come. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we're, we're like Elisha's servants. We need to see chariots of fire in the sky. Um, thank you for your attention. Sorry for going super fast. Let me quickly pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revelation. It's a gift to the church. Um, help us to read it with understanding. In Christ's name, amen.